When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations, to find my backlist of interviews, or to check out my summer reading guide for 2023, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. There is also a link to the summer reading guide in the show notes. I am thrilled to announce that I have launched a new Patreon level for those interested in accessing even more unique bonus content. My original level, called Page Turners, still includes my popular Early Reads program, where patrons have access to monthly early digital reads through NetGalley and exclusive pre-publication author chats, as well as monthly bonus episodes and fun surprise content. My new level is entitled Lit Lovers and includes all of the Page Turners benefits, as well as access to my new Traveling Galley program, where patrons have early access to at least three to four new titles a month that are in print galley form and are passed along to other members a monthly fiction-nonfiction pairing episode, a monthly episode containing bonus, spoiler-filled interviews with three authors, and finally, read-alike requests via email. Lit lovers can send me a book they loved, and I will respond with similar titles. This was such a popular and time-consuming add-on for me that I am moving it off of my main show. My true love is author conversations, and I want to be able to keep that focus on the show. Today, I'm chatting with Matthew Quirk about Inside Threat. Matthew is the New York Times bestselling author of eight novels. After graduating from Harvard with a degree in history and literature, he spent five years at The Atlantic reporting on crime, private military contractors, terrorism prosecutions, and international gangs. He lives in San Diego. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Matthew. How are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm great, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. I thought Inside Threat was such a thrill ride, and I cannot wait to hear more about it. Oh, fun. Yeah, I can't wait to to chat. And I saw that you had a Starred Publishers Weekly review, so congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that's exciting. You know, you just, you do your best and you ship it out into the world. And we get so close to the books, 
by the end, sometimes you have like no idea <laughs> if it's if it's any good or not. But th- this one, it was uh, yeah, it was really actually very challenging to write, but it worked out really well in the end. So I'm I'm happy and relieved. Absolutely. It is, I'm sure, such a nice feeling when you turn over the final draft and you know it's now going into production and you can just lay your hands off of it or take your hands off of it. Yes. Although then you have to turn around and write the next one. Right. <laughs> Not to complain, but you know. So yeah, we, we keep, keep busy here. Absolutely. Well, before I dive into my questions, will you give me a quick synopsis of Inside Threat for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. Um, the setup and the initial idea for the book is, you know, what if the president comes under attack and he flees to this real life top secret underground government facility, which is a fascinating place, and then locks himself in for protection. And then once they close and seal these giant blast doors, he finds himself locked inside with the threat. So it's a bit of, it's a little bit like Die Hard um, was one of my inspirations for it, but it's also a little bit like an Agatha Christie locked room or stranded on an island kind of mystery. You know, so I came to it with the premise initially, and then it was fun to see the characters take on a life of their own. There's a veteran Secret Service agent named Eric Hill, who has been a little bit disillusioned and finds himself locked in with everyone. And then a younger, actually, it's her first week on the White House detail, named Amber Cody, who's also in there. And the complication is that Eric Hill was partners with Amber Cody's father, who died in the line of duty. So there's a lot of, there's a lot there kind of emotionally between them. And uh, yeah, that's the setup. And then you just, you know, see what happens. You start madly turning the pages if you're the reader. I hope so. (laughs) Well, how did you come up with the idea for this one? And you say in the beginning of your book, and you just mentioned it, that Raven Rock Mountain Complex is a real place. How did you learn about it? Well, I think the initial idea of this came from like a long time ago, somebody actually asked me to try my hand in a very like speculative way at adapting or like making a pitch at adapting for screen an old book. And it was, I mean, the setup was like a bunch of people in a weekend house and it had some spy stuff. And then some of them don't trust each other. And that idea was just in my head for forever. And then many years later, I'm always writing down ideas. I thought, you know, just trap the president in a bunker and he's in there with his most trusted aides and protection. And then one of them is trying to kill him. So I had that idea in my notes for probably like seven or eight years. And whenever I sit down to write a book, I I look through my notes and just see what, you know, stirs my fancy. And at the same time, my friend who I knew from college journalism and is an incredible nonfiction journalist. He was just a Pulitzer finalist. We found out like this week or last week, Garrett Graff, who I knew through college journalism. And then we both did DC journalism. He wrote a book called Raven Rock about not only this facility, which is fascinating because it's like an underground city that the military establishment can live in if there's a nuclear war. And it's built under a mountain outside D.C. And it's also about all of the continuity of government planning, all the doomsday planning around this stuff, which I worked into the book, because there's a lot of interesting stuff, both in terms of like the nuclear doomsday stuff, which I think people know about, but also these presidential emergency action documents, the PIADs, which are these secret 
very interesting, a little scary plans and kind of legal authorities that are written up in advance that if there's an emergency, the president can invoke and no one knows what's in them. So as a thriller writer, it's fun to dig into something like that because, I mean, it's a real thing. But if, if there was a really crazy emergency, you know, the president could, could take over the country and sort of declare martial law or even nationalize industry. So um, it's a fun, maybe not the right word, but it's a, it's a nice thriller element because it's, it's such a potent, like secret thing and also is a real life thing. So that's kind of my sweet spot for the books. A lot to play with there. Yeah. I was very glad that you included a map at the beginning because I kept going back and forth to the map to make sure I understood where they were as they were going back and forth within the complex. Did you get to tour Raven Rock Mountain Complex? No, <laughs> Raven Rock <laughs> is not currently doing tours. <laughs> but I thought for you, they might say, okay, if you're going to write about it, we really want you to see it. No, they're not doing tours. Well, that's a bummer. There is actually an interesting site in... Uh, West Virginia, I think. Right. Under the Greenbrier. The Greenbrier. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, you can tour that. Yes. Somebody blew the whistle on that in like the 80s. Right. So you can go check out one of these. So no, I had to find out what it looked like through a lot of research and kind of talking to people. And then it is more complicated a layout than it is in the book. So I streamlined the layout, layout a little bit. If I were writing a purely fictional thing, I would have streamlined it even more because in the first draft of this book, and one of the challenges of this book was keeping the reader oriented because it's a fascinating place, but there's no civilian intuitive reference for a place like this. It's a mountain, and then they basically bore these giant tunnels into it, and then the tunnels branch out, and then they build office buildings inside the tunnels, and then they put them on springs so they can get hit with a nuclear bomb. Right. The springs made it so much more complicated. You know, every time the springs came up, I was like, okay, I'm trying to envision how this would be. And so I was just curious. Obviously, I I can see where you wouldn't have toured it because it's top secret. But there's got to be somebody that's been in there before that shared information about how it's set up. Well, there was, I mean, there was Garrett's book, which was very helpful. Right. Did he tour it? I don't know that he did. I and Garrett is actually like a super he he does it all, but he's very tapped in with national security people because he he does like cybersecurity consulting too. But I don't I don't know that he toured it. So it was a lot of photos, and then there's actually they've never let the press into Raven Rock. Yeah, I can see that. But they have let the press into Cheyenne Mountain, which is where NORAD is, and is a similar construction. So I was able to piece it together from, you know, government documents, maps, photos of Cheyenne, descriptions, and, and then I streamlined it a little bit. And then there's a map in there to keep the reader oriented because I wanted to make sure somebody could just dive into the action and not have to be like, oh, what is this and what is that? So there's a map and then there's actually sort of an illustration to show how these cool buildings fit inside these tunnels and where the springs are. And I I made that myself. I was like a crazy person. Well, I'm impressed because I feel like those are so helpful when I'm reading, especially with something like this, because I just was kind of having a little trouble wrapping my mind around it. And I guess it's because of what you just said. It's so different than anything we're used to that trying to conjure it up, there wasn't really anything to conjure 
that I'd seen before. But I was like, thank goodness this map is here. I don't know who's responsible for it, but it's super helpful. Yeah. I mean, I put that together. I had an illustrator help me kind of zhuzh it up. And then there's almost um, like renderings like you would see if you were having your house redone or something of what it looks like inside. So I think hopefully that sets the stage for the reader. So it's easier to follow. And yeah, I laid all those out and it was, it was a fun thing to, to do and to learn. Although my wife would come in, we had just had a baby too. And it would be like two in the morning and I'd be like doing the tunnels with the springs and everything and laying it out on my 19th draft. And she's like, Whoa, you're in deep on this book. And I, I was. Congratulations on your baby as well. Oh, That's thank exciting. you. Yeah. So how did you get started writing these type of political thrillers, these things set in D.C. with all the action and everything? Well, I was in D.C. doing journalism, and I, I studied history and literature as an undergrad, and the history ended in like 1945. We didn't go much past that. And then I also did the school newspaper, and through that was able to get a job at The Atlantic. And most of my peers were news and foreign affairs junkies. And I, I wasn't that up on those subjects. So I got this job at the Atlantic in DC and it was a baptism by fire, both in like the subject matter, but also I was very fortunate. The owner of the magazine was hiring people to work in sort of office of the publisher kind of roles. And he just sold a giant healthcare company and was used to having like a giant staff. So he needed people to work right with him. So I suddenly was like 21 or 22 because this also happened when I was an intern and I was working directly for him. And then he's, uh, he's a Washington figure. Uh, his name's David Bradley. And he, I mean, he did so many wonderful things for me. And he is this kind of old school Washington figure in that he knows everybody and he hosts like salons at his house. His house, if I remember right, is the former Cuban embassy. So it's kind of like in this stretch of Georgetown, that's all embassies and mansions. And you would go over there. And I was like so nervous, of course. And it would be a New York Times columnist and a former CIA director and a foreign correspondent having one of these, like, you picture, what's his name, Stuart Alsap going to one of these 1960s style Georgetown salons where they're like hashing out whether the U.S. should be an imperial power. And I was just trying to remember like which fork to use and (laughs) to make sure I didn't drink too much wine. You're like, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, oh God, I hope they don't call on me. Although I was, I was like so full of myself when I was young. I'd be like, well, here's my opinion. And, and then at the same time, it was the run up to the Iraq war. So there were like spies going around DC trying to get the American government to put them in power after the fall of Iraq. And then you would go like listen to records at your friend's house. And then the, the Iraqi spies would be there and you'd be drinking beer and listening to records and also like, there'd be some mild conspiring. And so it was just, just all this wild stuff. And I was not writing meaty foreign correspondent type articles for the magazine. I was writing like the squibs for the front. So it just kind of overflowed into writing thrillers. And I had always loved writing. And that was when it really clicked of what I should be writing. Well, I'm always totally intrigued by these ones that are set in DC and involve the president or congressional people or like the night agent somebody who works down at this small room with the phone and, you know, that's his sole job is to answer the phone when it rings. I just think those things are so intriguing and I love them. So I was immediately drawn when I read the 
description of your book. And I just thought it was very well done. And you do a great job of keeping the pace up. I mean, is that something that you focus on the whole time you're writing? Like, I need to make sure this is moving along? Well, it's not something where I sit down and I'm like prodding myself to do it. It's just, it's the natural way I fall into with these books. I I like to write action scenes. And this is kind of the funny thing in terms of me developing as a writer. You know, I, in college, they, if you want to do creative writing, they encourage you to do sort of short story literary stuff, which is very like quiet and introspective. And I didn't think that I would be, you know, like an action thriller specialist. So my first book, it took me a long time to actually, that book never saw the light of day, but I was trying to figure out which type of book was my strength. And it was funny because I don't spend the weekends like doing Krav Maga and shooting and flying airplanes, you know, (laughs) and there's a lot of guys writing thrillers who do, and they're awesome. And so it wasn't naturally somebody saying like, you're going to write these action thrillers. And so I would write more like Christopher Buckley books because I'm funny and, you know, that was kind of my strength of like that sort of thing. And I'm good at a cocktail party. And I wrote a book that was more like that or Evil and Wall or something. And then in order to give it a plot, I added some thriller elements and people were like, well, those parts stink (laughs) (laughs) and the thriller parts are good. And I said, really? Because those are a lot of fun for me. And um, slowly it was like, you know, K turning an aircraft carrier, I realized like I should be writing these thrillers and I love doing it, you know, because I I grew up reading. My mom was in grad school in English when I was growing up. And so she had like William Butler Yeats and Hilda Doolittle and all this great stuff around. And then my dad was just reading like five thrillers a night. And so I, I did it all. And I grew up reading John Grisham and Michael Crichton and stuff. So it was funny to cast about for a while and then see what you know, what finally clicked. I'm always curious how that works out for authors, exactly how you land where you land, because this is a very specific subgenre within thrillers. And so I was curious if it was something you had worked in or exactly how you got there. So that's an interesting story, yours is. Yeah, I always got just what I needed when I needed it, you know, and then I never would have predicted. And there's so many times in your life where you feel like you've kind of fallen on your face and failed. And then in retrospect, you're like, I'm so glad that worked out. Like, I'm glad I'm not in journalism anymore as much as I loved it because I love doing this. But I'm so glad I was in journalism because it brought me back to the writing in in the right way. I tell my kids that all the time. I have two kids in their early 20s and one that's um, late teen. And I just say, things sometimes seem so earth shattering right now. And you're so unhappy that you didn't get into this program or you're going to do this differently than you thought you were. But almost every single time you're going to look back and be like, thank goodness that happened to me that way because it led me down a different path. Yeah. And life is long. And I mean, I remember a friend of mine was going back to medical school after doing a stint in journalism and she was, I don't know, 25 or 26. And I was like, but you'll be 33 (laughs) by the time you get your medical degree, your life will be over. (laughs) They were like, thanks. (laughs) Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing Inside Threat? I I think what surprised me was, I mean, I guess first the characters, because sometimes you start with a character like the night agent, the guy sitting by the phone all night. My friend had a similar job. And so you start with a character and then sometimes you start with a premise like this is a very inside thread is a very premise forward book. And and then you have to figure out who's there. And given the premise there's only so many people who would be in there, you know, secret service agents, the president, his aides. 
And it was, it was interesting and surprising to see who those people turned into and how it developed. And, you know, I used to try to schematically figure this stuff out, but I, I've learned you just need to like take long walks and let your brain do its mysterious brain things and like the connections form and the characters change. So, I mean, initially the female lead, Amber Cody, was just a rookie and Eric Hill, the male lead, was just the sort of grizzled veteran. And then as I was writing, I was like, oh, interesting. What if they had this backstory? And what if, you know, her father was killed in the line of duty and then Eric, you know, is sort of mentoring her on her first day. And I said, oh, well, that'll, that'll certainly be interesting. And then, you know, I had had, Eric would have like a, a buddy. So there would be somebody there who he was trying to protect. So we had a personal stakes when they're all locked in there. So his friend doesn't get killed. And then that person just like disappeared from the book as it, as he got more invested in this other character. So that's a big surprise. And that's, that's fun you know, to see that happen, although it does require sort of like reworking a lot. And then, and the other thing that surprised me was just how, how challenging this book was, because I thought, I'll lock him in the bunker. I have the setup. This thing is going to be a bullet. <laughs> and then I was writing it and the locked room thing is very challenging. Yes. Because you're constrained and orienting the reader. I like to think that the final product Somebody can just dive in and won't have to spend a lot of brain power keeping track of everyone and everything. But to make it that user friendly took like an enormous amount of rewriting. And um, yeah, so this book, what surprised me is how one of these, you know, high concept Hollywood premises can actually be so, so challenging to write. Well, if you have a book where it's like a more typical conspiracy thing where you meet somebody, you get a clue, you meet somebody else. Those feel more sprawling, but they're actually easier to write because you can just say, oh, and then they meet this person. And it's, it's one thing after another. You're not constrained by the people that are locked in the bunker, as in this instance. And the other thing that I would think would make this a little more complicated would be that you've got these separate buildings within the bunker. So you can't have them all just in one building locked together because no action can happen. So then you've got to figure out how to get them from one bunker to the other or one office building to the other and then have people separated so somebody can die and then you know nobody still knows how they died. I mean, there's got to be a lot of that planning that would be pretty intricate, I think. It, it was. It was. And I was sort of glad I didn't know what I was getting into at the beginning because I was like, it's so simple. They're all locked in the bunker. And they're all going to die. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But then it, it turned out to be, it turned out to be one, might be the hardest, the hardest book, you know, it, it never, it never had one of those things where you're like, which often happens in books where you're like, oh, this whole book isn't going to work. All hope is lost. But it did just require kind of like grinding and, and just constantly keeping track and, you know, making sure I sweated all of that out so that by the time the reader came to it, it would just like flow right through. Exactly. Well, I was watching The Night Agent with my family at the same time I was reading Inside Threat. And I had a little bit of a time really making sure I was keeping them separate. But my family all loved The Night Agent. We had so much fun watching it. And I just want to hear what that process was like for you. What was it like to have your book made into this limited series? Well, it was a dream. And, you know, you hear different things. But many times in, in author land, authors don't have the best experiences with Hollywood. In fact, I, I would say that that is sort of the default thing. 
where you say, I got something adapted. As much as it's an incredible, uh, it's like winning the lottery. As much as it's a wonderful thing like that, the the standard thing is, oh yeah, would they treat you like garbage? You know, what's <laughs> and it was a charmed experience from beginning to end. And the book, it didn't initially, it got a lot of interest initially, but didn't get uh, like a TV or film deal. And then I moved on to the next one. And then it was like this slow but steady thing where this production company run by these these great people picked it up. And I thought, oh, okay, well, we'll see what happens because things often get optioned. If you know, I've been fortunate with that. But you don't want to get your hopes up. And that's the one upside to having done this for a while that you you learn to keep everything in perspective. But then they got Sean Ryan from The Shield involved and like involved with a ton of enthusiasm. He just went ahead and wrote the pilot because he was like so excited about it. And then I was like, oh, okay, we're we're really rolling here, but you know, I'll believe it when I see it. And then he got Netflix involved. He works at Sony and then they brought it to Netflix, which is really where he he wanted it. And and then Netflix had him rework it a little bit and then they ordered a series. And at that point, it was going to get made. And my my agents would tell me it's going to get made, and I would say, yeah, but you know, then there's <laughs> then there's this hurdle, right? Because there's always another hurdle, right? And then it always falls apart at one of them, and then they're like, no, and then I started to see that they were filming, and I was like, oh, okay, and then you know, they, they the the check showed up, and I was like, okay, they're really really making this, and then everybody involved, like Sean Ryan, was incredibly gracious to me. He sent me the script to make sure I was like happy with how he had treated things. And it was, it was great because, well, I love the script and it was a thrill to talk to Sean Ryan. And it was just so nice having somebody of whom I was a fan working on it because I could just say, I trust you. I love your shows. Go work your magic on this. While, you know, in some other instances, people have had takes on books of mine. And I've been like, I don't know about that, you know? And then you're in this funny, you're excited about the situation where you're excited about it being adapted, but maybe you're wary and you want to give more feedback and make sure it turns out right. But with him, I just said, I trust you. I'm happy to help. I'm happy to stay out of your way. And we had some conversations where I gave him some sort of like top level character stuff, which turned out to be helpful. And then they just ran with it. And then I got to visit the set, which is a thrill of a lifetime. I bet. Yeah, it was so cool. And and then I got an I got to see the pilot in their offices, and then I got an advanced screener, and my wife and I loved it. But I, I no one knew that this was going to turn into like Netflix's top five shows of all time and this global phenomenon. I didn't know that. That's amazing. It turned into an absolute massive global hit and i had just hoped it wouldn't flop not because of you know anything substantive about the show it's just like getting a show made is like winning the lottery and then i've had friends and you know they get shows or movies made and they do fine or sometimes they don't and it's you know you you can't even hope just getting it made is winning the lottery so you can't hope for much more and this came out of nowhere and it turned into like a massive, massive global hit for Netflix. It, it just edged out. And I love Bridgerton and Bridgerton is at William Morrow with me, but it just edged out Bridgerton. 
Okay, that's impressive, actually, because people talk about Bridgerton all the time. Yeah, it's crazy. And I've never seen Bridgerton, but that is crazy. Well, I think people like these kind of fast-paced stories that take them out of whatever's happening in the world right now, but keep them engaged and they're intelligent. And I just, I thought it was very well done. Was it so nerve-wracking to watch the pilot around the people that had done it? Well, no, I was in like a little conference room by myself. Oh, okay. I would be like, okay, I'm going to be all by myself here so that I'm not making any facial expressions. Well, I always think about like Lee Child and the Jack Reacher series and Tom Cruise being cast as Jack Reacher, which was so unhappy for Lee Child. And so those are the kind of things you just think, I want it to be emblematic of my book. I want you know people to read my book and then watch this show and be like, I can see where this show came from this book. And so that's nice that you feel that it did. Yeah. Oh, my God. And my joke is like, oh, it's a typical Hollywood story where everyone (laughs) over delivers on their promises and is super nice and treats the writer really well. I mean, the fun thing is my wife and I have just become like total homebodies with the with the baby. And then it was like more than she was more than a year old. And that going to L.A. for the premiere was our first night out since the baby had come. So we'd like threw ourselves into the deep end with the the red carpet as our our first night out, which had warmed up with like an Italian dinner or something. Okay, that's hilarious. Yes, from zero to 180, nothing in between. I think it's a very good time for books being made into series and movies because there are so many streaming platforms and I think everybody is looking for content. So it seems like more and more books are actually getting made. But also the flip side of that, there is so much streaming content So the fact that The Night Agent is now elevated itself into the top five Netflix shows ever is pretty impressive because I feel like we sit down to try to decide what to watch and it's just mind boggling because there are so many things out there. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like TV is now a little bit like books are where you're reading a book and no one's heard of it and, you know, they publish like 10,000 books a year and it's, it's hard to find anything. But I think that's great because like if a book needs to be or I should say, if a television show, if there's only going to be 10 shows a year on the major networks and they need to appeal to like 50 million Americans just to justify their economics, then they're going to be a certain way. And you can't have weird stuff or interesting stuff or dark stuff as much. Although it's incredible what people do in terms of like creativity while also getting massive audiences on, on network like The Shield. But it's just a great time, both in terms of the breadth of shows you can watch and as an opportunity for authors to get books made into, made into shows because there's, I mean, there's fewer barriers to entry. Although I should say, I think like the last three or four years were the high tide of that. And now there's a little bit of belt tightening. Yes, I think that's right. And some of these services are starting to combine, like Hulu and Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. I think there are so many platforms that people can't decide even which ones to subscribe to. And I think there is going to be belt tightening and a combination of some of these platforms so that you don't have to choose between 10 different places to decide what you want to watch. But I mean, the whole thing has been, I, no one could have expected this because it wasn't like, it wasn't a $10 million an episode show. It wasn't like one of these shows where they get like Tom Hanks or Rob Lowe or something, you know? And it just, it was just a very well done story. And that was why I was so excited for, for Sean Ryan to take it on because he just knows how to make a story that draws people in and gets them involved emotionally and keeps them watching. And he and the whole cast and crew delivered. 
And once you actually see how hard it is to make any show, I just, I'm in awe of those people. Even if they made a bad show, (laughs) which they didn't, I would be in awe because they work so hard and it's like a thousand people on set. Well, it's probably two or 300 and it's such an undertaking and I I have so much respect for them. And then you have a whole second life for that book. Yeah. And what's neat and maybe why I was less protective was because Sean had a story he was working on about the Secret Service and some of this kind of family high political intrigue. And it never felt like a full show to him. And he combined that with the Night Agent. So the Night Agent show is very much its own thing. And that's a good way to keep yourself sane when someone's adapting your book anyway. You say, well, the book is the book and this TV show will be a different thing. But I can also understand when they have the same name and 500,000 times more people watch the, the show than your book, I can understand wanting to make sure it's the best foot forward. But it's, it's neat to me because it's, it's kind of a, a reinvention of the book. So I got to watch the scenes at the beginning, it's straight from the book. And seeing scenes and dialogue just pulled straight from my keyboard to end up in a TV show is one of the most thrilling things that ever happened. It was completely uncanny, and I loved it. And then, by the end of the first episode, people are showing up, villains are showing up, and I don't know who they are. (laughs) And I don't know who they can trust. And when I watched the pilot in the office, I, I I was just shouting like, I was like a bad movie theater goer because I was like, who the hell is that guy? What? You know, because it's a very exciting show. And because I was as new to those twists as the readers or the viewers were. And so it was really fun because I got that familiarity and the satisfaction of seeing it adapted, but also got all the surprises and twists. So it was it was a very interesting experience and it was fascinating to see it all come together. I think it would be. And to think about, okay, this is how I was envisioning it. And they've taken my vision here, but they've gone in a different direction here. And just seeing it all come to life. Have you watched it more than once? Yes, yes. Because everybody (laughs) wants to watch it with me. Yeah. So I've watched the pilot like four or five times. And I've watched uh, the whole series twice, I think. Oh, that's awesome. Well, do you have any progress on any of the others being optioned or made into anything? Or is that something that you want to keep under wraps because you don't know where they are? That is something I need to keep under wraps for for other reasons for 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 wonderful reasons and it's basically I, nothing that can be announced yet well before we wrap up what have you read recently that you really liked well so my reading time has been dramatically curtailed so it's it's a lot of like my childhood <laughs> copy of sam i am is back in the mix i'm sneaking in reading time here and there so i would recommend raven rock by garrett graff which is a cool nonfiction compliment to the book and I recently finished the Hillary Mantle books, the, the Wolf Hall series, which were absolutely amazing. And in nonfiction, in history, The Free World, which is like a cultural history of 20th century America by, uh, I think he's at Harvard now, by Louis Menand, professor. It was like amazing and mind-blowing. And um, True Grit by Charles Portis. And there's an audiobook version read by Donna Tartt which is so fun because she's from like the South. Cause you think of, I think of her as like this kind of elite New York or new England private school kind of person, but she's from the South. She's got this wonderful accent and she reads the book 
and it complements the book. And it's just an incredible book. And it's got this great, young, but fearless female protagonist. And she was one of many inspirations for the female protagonist in Inside Threat. Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. And the Free World book sounds really good, too. I'm going to have to track that one down. It's great. Yeah. I like that type of stuff. It's hard to find 20th century histories. And it's it's great. It's it's all this stuff I was studying in college put into like one big narrative that I love. And those things really helped me tie together the different things that were happening and realize sometimes either they were happening at the same time, but a lot of times they were more interwoven than I realized when I would learn about something separately each time, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And there's so much myth making. Right. So when somebody actually does a history, you realize like everything that you know was a little bit of like spin. And to get the real story is always fascinating to me. Well, and that note actually makes me think about another thing I'd thought about Inside Threat was as I was reading your book, I was thinking there are probably so many things, I'm sure there are so many things that happen in D.C. that we never hear about, like, you know, a president going into a bunker or some kind of threat here or something happening that the public just never learns about. Sure. And I mean, one anecdote from the book, everybody knows that Reagan was shot, but Reagan was at death's door. And it, it didn't come out till years later that he was he was like this close to dying. Though I mean those those Secret Service officers absolutely saved his life. Yes. And so I think it's interesting and a little alarming when you're reading a book like this to think there are so many things I don't know, but maybe it's better I don't know them. And that I mean that's the space we play around in as thriller writers. Right. That's what makes it so exciting to read the book. Well Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really really enjoyed Inside Threat and I can't wait for it to make its way into the world. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, 
physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.